presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am the chairman of the board of the Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we are joined by Sally Pipes and Chris Brown. Sally Pipes is president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, a San Francisco-based think tank, founded in 1979. Ms. Pipes has published several books regarding healthcare, one of which, False Promise, was published in early 2020. If you've not checked it out, we encourage you to do so. Sally, it's great to have you on board today. Well, thank you so much, Earl, and I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know Chris over the last, I don't know, year, year and a half. I'm really excited by what you're doing in Colorado. I think the Common Sense Institute was definitely a necessary new organization needed. And so it's very exciting. I'm delighted to be working with you. Sally, thank you for your nice comments. In addition to Sally, I would like to welcome Chris Brown, uh, the Common Sense Institute Director of Policy and Research, back to the show. And as you all know, Chris has done a yeoman's job in overseeing all the research for the Institute uh, Chris, how many years has that been now? It's been a little over three years. Uh, so it's great to be back here and talking with you. And, and I have to say that this is going to be a great show because for me, it can only go up from here, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining us as we discuss the multi-layered issue of health care. The Colorado government's running a public option proposal. Sally, I want to get started with you. You've been addressing national and international audiences concerning health care. In fact, in 2018, you received the honorary PhD from Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy for all of your work on healthcare reform. Now, Sally, I know that that institute uh, actually is one of the counterbalances to some of the things that goes on in the East Coast with the Harvard School of Public Policy and the the uh, Princeton School of Public Policy. It used to be known as the Woodrow Wilson School. I don't know if it still is or not. But that's quite a compliment because no. uh, Pepperdine's a really a prestigious institution in the public policy arena on the West West Coast. But I mentioned uh, that you were at the in San Francisco uh, at the uh, Pacific Research Institute. What I didn't mention though is that you were at the Fraser Institute in Vancouver, Canada before that. So you have some special insight as to uh, healthcare from a Canadian perspective. Will you share that? Definitely. It's kind of embarrassing. Uh, Chris has been at the Common Sense Institute for three years, and on October 1st, I'll have been at PRI for 30 years. So he's just a young person starting out, and I'm I'm getting to be, I'm getting older. Anyway, yes, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Vancouver. I was a founding staff member at the Fraser Institute, Canada's only free market think tank. And, you know, it started in 1974. But in 19, in the 1940s, the government of Saskatchewan under Socialist Premier Tommy Douglas um, started taking over the healthcare industry, first the hospitals and then the doctors. By 1984, the Canadian government had fully taken over the healthcare system. And at Fraser, we started noticing in the, in the late 80s that there were waiting lists starting to develop for procedures and for appointments with doctors. So we started a project called Waiting Your Turn, a guide to waiting lists. And the first uh, publication of that project came out in 1993. So I've been very involved from 1988 in the beginning of uh, tracking waiting lists, seeing what was happening to the Canadian healthcare 
industry. And then in 1991, I was offered the position to move to the States, much to my family's chagrin, the only Canadian to ever leave home. And um, I took over PRI on October 1st, 1991. And one of the first things that we started researching, of course, was healthcare because we had an initiative on the ballot for single payer in California. Then there was Hillary Care in 1993. Then there was um, Obamacare. And of course, now there is Biden Care. So I've been very involved in this issue. And I'm, it's really, it's just such a important part of my life. It's, I say, I'm going to be fighting for empowering doctors and patients in healthcare until death do me part, because it is so very important to me that we don't allow the American healthcare system to be taken over by Canada's system, which is a true single payer system. Government is the only provider of healthcare for anything considered medically necessary. And, you know, the waiting time last year, 2020, from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist in Canada, 22.6 weeks. That's over five months. And back in 1993, when we brought out the first study, it was 9.3 weeks. 22.6 weeks is the longest in the history of measuring wait times. And as Bernie Sanders continues to tell the American people, the Canadian healthcare system is free. Well, in fact, it's not. Canadians pay hidden taxes, $14,474 a year to pay for a system with the long waits, ration care, and doctor shortages. So this is a real passion of mine, and um, I'm excited to be um, continuing to fight for it and to be with you in, in Colorado, where you're seeing some interesting things as we're going to talk about the public option being reintroduced, maybe in your legislature. It seems, Sally, it, it seems to me it, that we've kind of created our own problem here. And I want to go back to your book, Miracle Cure, How to Solve America's Healthcare Crisis and Why Canada Isn't the Answer. In your foreword, and I, I want to quote this by Milton Friedman. So we have the paradox that while scientific medicine continues to advance, formerly incurable diseases become curable and pain can become more readily managed. Nonetheless, patients and physicians express more and more dissatisfaction with medical care. That is an interesting paradox. Do you believe that this uh, stands today, truly today in America? And that's one of the issues we have, or the issue, paramount issue. And what other challenges do you see that we're facing? But let's kind of go to the paradox first. It seems we're creating our own problem. Things get better and better and better, and people seem to be wanting more and more and are dissatisfied. Well, America is a very wealthy country, much more wealthy than, than Canada. And the, my mom used to say, I hope you're not becoming one of those impatient Americans because she saw Americans as being impatient. If you are an American and you want an MRI, you don't want to be told you have to wait over four months to get your MRI. So if you need neurosurgery, you don't want to have to wait 33 months. So Americans, Americans are wealthy and we do have the very best healthcare system in the world. We can talk a bit later about some of the things that would make it even better. But I think if you look at what Milton had to say, Milton Friedman, my mentor, and Milton lived into his 90s, partly because of you know, great um, surgery in, in, on his heart allowed him to, to, I think he had three major heart surgeries and lived into his 90s. So it's so interesting that all of the innovation in healthcare, in drugs, in uh, biologics, all of the latest work is done in the United States. You know, if you look at it, hepatitis um, C that a lot of people have come down with, there wasn't a cure for hepatitis C. 
The only cure was having a liver transplant, which costs about $500,000. Well, Solvaldi, the Gilead drug at a cost of $84,000, allows people to be cured of hep C, and it's a wonderful innovation. We are the nation that has all of the great innovation. Look what happened uh, with the, the COVID. In nine months, two um, vaccines had been developed, one by Pfizer, BioNTech, and the other uh, by Moderna. Uh, they got emergency use authorization in early December, and those drugs are out there. I mean, this would not have happened if we had had a government takeover of our healthcare system and if price controls were in existence because there would be no incentive for innovation in these areas whether it's hepatitis C, whether it's cancer and all the modern treatments that are now out there, or whether it's a vaccine for a pandemic. It seems to me you're, you're starting to allude to what I want to ask you about next, and that is that you, know, you bring down, the, the, in your book, Miracle Cure, you, you bring it down to three basic levels with regards to uh, health care. You see people you know, generally want to know about affordability, accessibility, and they want high quality. Is it possible to really have all three of these elements through a singular program, one government provided program? What do you have to have in place to have all three of those elements? We all want affordable, accessible quality care. Every, every, every American, everyone around the world wants that. If the government fully takes over the healthcare system as Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Pramila Jayapal, the real progressives who, you know, Bernie Sanders has been pushing for single payer for decades, came to the fore in 2016 when he was debating Hillary for the nomination for the um, Democratic nomination for the, the in the election. But he had two single payer bills, Senate single payer bills, 2017 and 2019. They want the government to fully take over the health care system. You will not get affordable care. As I said, in Canada, the average family pays hidden taxes of uh, over 14, over $14,500 a year. The waiting times, you have to wait over five months from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist. So that is not access. As Madam Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, just retired Supreme Court Justice in Canada, said in a, in a ruling in a case in Quebec, the Choli versus the province of Quebec, access to a waiting list is not access to health care. And so if the government takes over the healthcare system, government will have to set a global budget and not spend as much money as is needed. And so you will get waiting lists, you'll get ration care. You know, the CBO just came out in December with their report on single payer saying that single payer will lead to ration care. And in my own family, my own mother died from colon cancer in Vancouver, Canada, because as a senior, she could not get a colonoscopy when she felt she had colon cancer. She had an x-ray that doesn't so a col um, colon cancer, um, six months later, when she was hemorrhaging, went to the hospital, spent two days in the emergency room, two days in the transit lounge waiting for a bed. She got her colonoscopy, but she died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. This is how government rations care. And it's cheaper to ration care than it is to give care. So we want affordable care, we want accessible care, and we want great care. If we open up the system, competition in all aspects of our life will lead to all of the things that we've just talked about. So we want to ensure that Americans have access to many different types, because different types of care. I mean, Chris is young. He may want, you know, a short-term limited duration plan or association health plan, or he may want a plan that doesn't have all these mandates and, and regulations. I'm an older person. I might want a plan that has alcohol rehabilitation on it 
because I've been fighting healthcare for far too many years and trying to keep it alive. So people should be able to choose the type of care that they want. Unfortunately, you know, with the Biden administration, Biden care, they want to build on Obamacare. It is a stepping stone approach to single payer health care, and it's going to be very costly and costly in terms of access to the latest drugs and treatment, expensive, and um, it will be a disaster. 160 million Americans have employer-based coverage, and 71%, 71% of them like it. 59% of the poll, people polled say they support single payer. But these people, when polled, are asked, well, you're, if you you're going to lose your employer-sponsored coverage. Support goes down to 37%. If they were at, when they were asked, would you support paying higher taxes for your health care under the government? And went down, support went down to 26%. So we need to keep educating Americans, like the Common Sense Institute is doing and like we're doing at Pacific Research, to tell Americans why keeping the market open and building on more competition in healthcare will be the solution for all of our ills in the healthcare field. Sally, thanks. That the, that's probably the crispest explanation I've heard in a long time of the choices. To some extent, it, it, forgive me for my kind of simple way of looking at it. It seems to me what you're saying in healthcare, you like to see the idea of if you want to buy a Chevrolet, you can buy a Chevrolet if that's what you want to drive. Or if you want a Cadillac, you want to pay for a Cadillac, well, guess what? That ought to be a choice that you ought to be able to have. And it's a choice that all you know, every American and consumer ought to, ought to be able to make. Am I kind of hearing you correctly with regards to my simple analogy? Well, absolutely. And remember, in the former Soviet Union countries, I mean, the Trabant, you know, and the Skoda, I mean, those were just terrible cars, but those were the choices that the people living in those Soviet bloc countries had. Americans would go crazy if they were all told they all had to buy uh, the Ford Focus or the Hyundai basic car. So we want we want choices. People want, I might want to buy, you know, I don't actually have a car, but I might want to buy, you know, an SUV, but, you know, Chris may want a small compact car. Um, you, Earl, may want a sports car, but let um, the American people decide have many options so that we can choose the best for, with, that fits our needs and those of our families and not what the government thinks is the best for us. Sally, I want to move to, thank you. I want to move to you, Chris. It seems to me that what we're doing in Colorado is not unique, but it's something that's uh, not practiced around the country very much. And I believe that has not been successfully implemented outside of except one state, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But, you know, the federal government plays a significant, arguably dominant role in creating the market for health care in the United States, Medicaid, Medicare. And we all know that those are the two largest growing segments of cost in our state budget for Medicaid. And we know the entitlement side for Medicare is dominating our federal budget. Um, however, even with the, the you know, federal government's involvement, uh, doesn't stop states like Colorado from, you know, significant efforts uh, independently to make some changes. Here in Colorado, for example, uh, the 2021 legislation is just getting underway. In fact, I think the governor just made a kind of his state of the state or his side, I don't know the state of the state address, but he addressed to the legislature his priorities. And I understand the public option is one of those priorities for this year. Can you help us out? Uh, where does the uh, effort at the state legislative level stand? Um, and give us, a, at the same time, if you can, the landscape of state health 
care policy debate. What's happening in Colorado? Yeah, thanks, Earl. And it's it's great to hear the remarks from Sally at the national scale. And I think that those sentiments and ideas, you know, really can translate to state policy or, or regulatory reform. But what we've seen be the sort of central and the primary focus of policy debate in the last couple of years has been the potential creation of this idea of uh, a public option. The public option really started to gain traction and attention following legislation that passed in 2019 uh, requiring the state healthcare department and division of insurance to produce a study that analyzed costs and feasibility of introducing a public option. The public option itself has changed in terms of what it actually is and what that actually means. But we last year, we saw a bill introduced that actually proposed to create this idea of a public option. It was, it was pulled uh, as, as COVID-19 shut down the session and um, you know, healthcare really went into overdrive here in the, in, the, in the States. We now expect, and comments from bill sponsors have uh, really started to say this much, that there will be a public option bill introduced this legislative session, which, as you mentioned, just kicked off. We have been really focused on this since the beginning to this is our fourth study. Just last week, we issued our fourth study on this topic, really to introduce uh, and ensure that there's a wider conversation around impacts of this type of of policy. Chris, could you stop there? Because I, I want all of our listeners to understand why are we doing this? What is the purpose of the public option in Colorado and what's the motivation? You did a very extensive and I thought that quite well done study. So could you uh, just give us the highlights of what is the motivation in Colorado for doing the public option? Yeah, the, the motivation is to create policy which reduces the price of health insurance, specifically uh, initially insurance in the individual uh, health insurance market, those purchasing health and coverage as individuals outside of an employer, um, and then potentially in the small group market that might uh, compete against the employer market as well. But it's really... Okay, so cutting cost is the first point. Okay, because that's important for what we're going to talk about later on. All right. And so what's the second major point that you can want to bring up? Well, I think that that it, the, the goal has been the move has been somewhat of a moving target. I think the consistent theme has been cost for consumers. We'll put it that way. So there's a lot of costs in healthcare, um, but really it's about the price for consumers. A secondary effort has been uh, initially talked about as increasing coverage, but that has sort of been proven to be less of a of a important issue, particularly in the way that it's been developed in some of the recent legislation. So I'd say there's two two goals that have been stated to reduce prices for those in the individual market and to increase coverage to reduce the number of uninsured. Let's move on if we can then to take kind of a little bit of a look if we could at the at the current environment, you've just issued a, a recent report and you said, let's do an update as to what reality is as of this point in time. 
So what is that, what is reality? What have we, at the, your most recent report, you pointed out five different factoids that we need to take into account and you're trying to make the legislature aware of it. Share those with us if you would, please. Again, to be clear, this is a comment on the previous legislation introduced last year. We, we've heard comments from the bill sponsors. They will likely be unveiling a, a different kind of public option this year, but that has yet to be seen. So ahead of that debate, we wanted lawmakers and frankly, the general public to understand a couple key areas, as you mentioned. One is consider the impacts that we modeled of the bill that was introduced last year and the unintended consequences as it relates to potential uh, impacts on healthcare services uh, and or increases to prices in the uh, employer market and because of the way our healthcare system has uh, sort of distorted costs because of public payers. So the first is to consider the impacts we modeled last year and reintroduce those ideas. But as you mentioned, not just because of COVID, although COVID has undoubtedly changed the healthcare market and hospitals and their uh, viability financially, but the underlying understanding of Colorado's health insurance market has also changed. And again, not just because, because of COVID, but with data coming in before. Specifically, one of the main statistics that was cited heading into the public option debate was where Colorado hospital prices fell relative to other states. And it was cited as being one of the highest uh, Colorado being one of the highest, most expensive states uh, for hospital prices. The updated analysis by the think tank, Rand Corporation, that uh, did that analysis now shows Colorado in the bottom half. You know, another piece of information to consider is that there has been substantial recent reform, particularly the introduction of a reinsurance program here in Colorado, which in just the first two years of the program has decreased prices in the individual market significantly below national averages. And so we've seen a reduction in insurance prices. We now know that hospital prices are not uh, one of the highest in the country. And so I think when you consider the motivation for this public option, given the unintended consequences, I really think uh, lawmakers should take a little more heed of these new numbers in, in considering something like the public option. Uh, just, I want to go back and explore this just for a second. And I'm sure Sally's on top of this, but I find this absolutely fascinating. You're, you, so you're in effect saying that the hospital costs are not some of the, are not in the top two quartiles, which before they were arguing they were. And you're also saying that the insurance cost for individuals is not as, as high. In fact, it's significantly below the, the uh, top two quartiles, which I think is good news. But you didn't mention has quality of hospital care, which 18 months ago, we were considered to be one of the top quartile states in the country as far as having good hospital care. Has that changed? Or are we still providing the top quartile health care? That's a great question. I don't have updated numbers for you on how the quality has changed. However, the other point that I'd like to, you know, that I think we want individuals to, people to consider is that because of COVID-19 and the stress that this has put on hospitals, particularly 
rural hospitals where we know there are provider shortages and which translates to this question of access and quality. We don't know exactly how quality has been impacted, you know, in real time, or at least I haven't looked at that specifically, but we know that the financial pressure to maintain high quality is, is severely under stress. And we know that hospitals will likely be impacted even more this year than they were last year because of the fallout and because of you know, drying up of federal money. So we don't know where the bottom will be for our healthcare sector and how that will impact particularly rural markets. So it's, it's an absolutely critical question to consider and understand, I think, ahead of this type of debate. Well, one of the things that for those of you listening that Chris uh, is, is alluding to, which I think we need to make specific, is the uh, affordability of the public health care option was to be significantly uh, carried by the hospitals providing some additional benefits, financial benefits, by charging far less than what they would on a conventional basis for the same treatment. And the premise was that the hospitals in Colorado were making so much money that it was, in effect, only appropriate that they step forward and give up their profits to help support the, the cost of the public option. And you're saying, hey, wait a minute, don't know where it, that data is, it can't be verified at this point in time that they have the financial capabilities of doing that. And furthermore, the COVID-19 crisis has financially impacted these institutions and the rural ones where you're trying to help the people the most supposedly, even more so. So the basic model they're talking about, you're saying doesn't have merit. Is that fair? It definitely poses very significant challenges for these types of markets. And and there's one point I'd like to make on that, similar to what Sally has has brought up in terms of really emphasizing consumer choice. And, and, and I think what we see in the healthcare market is a market out of balance where the consumer has much less power. And this is an introduction, is an intervention in that market through introducing price controls in the name of supporting consumers. But the government is going to have a very hard time threading that needle and not causing these unintended consequences by trying to establish that adequate price point. And so we are all for considering ways in which competition can be improved and these market structures can be improved to drive uh, real savings and improve quality. But again, the public option as it was introduced and as it's been discussed um, publicly in, in many ways fails to do that. Well, I guess the, the truth of successful programming is like anything else, is the taste of the pudding. So tell me, Washington has implemented the uh, public option program, and they said it was going to save everybody a lot of money and they were going to get better health care. They've been into it for one year. What's happening? Yeah, it's an interesting case to evaluate, and I think it's absolutely you know the right sort of analysis to do in, in looking at how other states have done this. Now, long story short, Washington State, uh, as you said, did introduce a public option designed in a little bit different way than Colorado has discussed, but yeah, really did not offer savings. The public option as it was provided by private health insurance did not offer savings to a majority of Washington State individuals. There were some markets in Washington State that uh, the public option was the lower cost coverage. But one thing we, we've been speaking to directly is that if the public option is the lowest cost and we see these prices being forced down, 
without any change in the underlying cost of delivering the care to those individuals, particularly in the rural markets, we still don't know how the quality and the access will be impacted. And an important caveat for Washington is that there was no mandate. Uh, there was no mandatory participation in the same way it's been discussed in Colorado. And so on a voluntary basis, some markets uh, have seen the public option be a lower cost alternative, but it also shows that if mandated would cause potentially even more disruption across the state where it wouldn't be feasible in some of those other markets potentially. Thanks, Chris. Well, Sally, we have a quote from here I'd like to build our next uh, question on for you and Chris, and that is, if we want to bring costs down and extend coverage to more Americans, we have to open the healthcare marketplace to competition. By abolishing costly government regulations and reforming the tax code to make insurance more affordable. Sally, uh, this is a solution in your book, The Top 10 Myths of American Healthcare. As we look forward, what do you see as the future of healthcare reform? And I'd like the both of you to uh, bring that up. You know, what do you think policymakers uh, have to do? And uh, what do you see as the pragmatic issues that we need to resolve? Sally, let's start with you first, and then Chris. Well, thanks, um, Earl. I mean, the things that, that we've, I've been pushing, like tax, the tax treatment so individuals can get their care tax-free in the same way that people have that have employer-sponsored coverage. Telehealth, it finally took the COVID pandemic to bring about telehealth, and it's a great way to reduce costs, and it's a way, great way for people, particularly in rural communities, to get better access to better uh, doctors. We want to expand health savings accounts, health reimbursement accounts. We want to, you know, get rid of uh, certificate of need laws so hospitals can be set up um, where they're needed. All of these things are things that will open up the market. As P.J. O'Rourke said, if you think healthcare is expensive now, just wait until it's free. I think I'm very depressed about, you know, how our goals to open up the healthcare system to make it affordable, accessible, with quality care are going to happen. We've seen Biden. Um, executive orders where he's saying that no one would pay more than 8.5% of premium for their health care. Under the ACA, it's 10%. He's talking about subsidizing COBRA uh, to the tune of 85% for people who've lost their jobs. He, you know, his, he set up the special enrollment period from February 15th to May 15th to help people get exchange coverage, you know, if they lost their job. Well, you should have read the Obamacare, the ACA, because anyone who lost their job um, would be able to join an exchange plan at any time, same if there was domestic violence. So these things, that was just window dressing. And the problem is that we only have 11 million people on all the exchanges because the premiums are too high, the deductibles are too high, and narrow networks of doctors and hospitals. You know, I don't know if you saw, but uh, your Senator Michael Bennett, uh, the Democrat just introduced with um, Tim Kaine today, the Medicare X Choice Act. Uh, which is, of course, they're promoting a public option for not just for Colorado, but for the country. So that's very disturbing. Chris, I, in, in light of, um, I'm trying to figure out how I can put a positive spin on what Sally said, but I allow <laughs> you to do that, Chris. Can you give us some uh, positivity to end up our podcast today? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd echo a lot of the ideas that, that Sally has, that, but I guess... What I, what I might try to make, you know, my, my concluding thoughts as I've gone and done this research and other health, you know, research in the healthcare spaces is from a policy standpoint, I think it requires a different 
way of thinking that instead of something like the public option, which introduces new sets of rules and guidelines and uh, sort of a greater level of intervention, I think that the thinking in reforming the, the market to ensure that there's high access, high quality and improved affordability, policymakers should be considering how to remove some of those barriers, the innovations on telehealth, the innovations around uh, how the market is changing and how providers can actually access patients and get out of, you know, uh, remove the middleman at sometimes. These innovations in the market will occur, can occur, and they need fewer barriers as opposed to more. And so it's really a, I'd, I'd offer just a, a, a different way of thinking in terms of how to how to establish policy and move policy forward um, that is quite different than I think the way thinking is. So I don't know if that's a high note for you, but it's really changing the mindset for what policy, the purpose of policy should be. First of all, I want to thank both of you for the podcast today, but I also want to leave for something with you and for the rest of our Colorado ones that might be listening to this, is Nine Healthcare actually does an incredibly good job in the telemarketing with regards to, or tele capabilities with regards to healthcare with doctors, as well as the clinics that are set up around the state. Um, the research that's been done by them, Sally, with the clinics that have had blood testing and all sorts of kind of little preliminary things in healthcare uh, suggested that it uh, could prevent as much as $3 billion of additional healthcare costs just by taking preventive action that is being done by what they do. So there, there are examples here in Colorado, Chris, that if we just kind of get the state legislatures to find out about it, maybe we can get it expanded and help on the front end and avoid some of the front end costs as well as uh, the treatment when something happens. Thank you for both joining us today. It's a pleasure. Sally, thank you so much. Chris, this is a great job, buddy. Thank you and onward. Thank you so much, Sally. Good to talk to you, Earl. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.